Well, good morning, church. My name is Darren, and I'm one of the shepherds on staff. As we begin here in John chapter 11 this morning, I, I want to begin by just, um, just a little bit of, not a disclaimer, but just a little bit of a statement as we begin. The, the text that we're approaching here in John chapter 11 contains one of the most uh, profound miracles, apart from the resurrection of Christ, that we see in the entirety of Scripture. It's a very famous passage. In fact, it's a passage that's had quite a cultural impact. We hear about movies, you know, that are called the Lazarus Effect, and Lazarus this, and Lazarus that. This is a, it's a well-known story about Lazarus and his death, and being brought back from the dead. We, we hear it frequently. So it's a, it's a text that's had quite an impact. But it's also a text that contains a a profound truth. And and I mention that because what we're going to study this morning is both very vital, it's very important, it's a theological thing we've got to get our minds around and we've got to understand. It will make a profound impact on our life. But I also want to say before we dig into it that if you're here this morning and you're grieving, if you're in the midst of a season of grief or sense of loss, if you've recently lost a loved one, or if you've recently received a a diagnosis of illness, if you're in the midst of any kind of a personal emotional trial, I will say that it's entirely possible that this text is is not going to make you feel a lot better right away, right? And I mention that because I think sometimes in the midst of grief and in the midst of sorrow, we're so close to a thing that while there are profound truths here and while there are great things that we want to understand, both about God and the ministry of Christ and about his impact upon us, in the midst of your sorrow and in the midst of your suffering, sometimes you can almost feel bad about the fact that it's hard to get your arms around a text like this. I, I just want to release you from that, right? I want to say this morning that if you're going through a difficult season, we are family, right? This, is a, this isn't just, an, we're not a club, this, that's not what the church is, it's not an organization, uh, we're, we're, we are a family, that's, we're a body of people gathered together who love one another, and if you're grieving this morning, we want to walk alongside you in that. If you're, if you're suffering, if you're sorrowful, if you're carrying heaviness in your heart, um, I would not at all want you to listen to this text and feel like, you know, like somehow you've done something wrong because it might be hard for you to get your arms around. I want you just to feel the freedom to not be able to totally get this today, right? To just feel how you feel and respond how you respond. We're going to see there are people in the text who do that same thing. But if you're grieving and if you're heavy hearted today, don't carry that alone. So that's the other thing I would say. While this may be a difficult text for you to understand uh, in, the, in the situation you're in, there is no reason why you should be carrying your grief and your loss by yourself. Because we're a family, we want to be in it together. So whatever you're dealing with, um, let, let, let's be family in it. I just wanted to say before we get there that there may be some things in this that are sort of hard for you to, to sort of wrap your mind around this morning. Because it deals with God's response to our response to suffering. What we'll see in John chapter 11, and we're not going to even study the whole story this morning. We're going to do it in two parts, so next week we'll finish the story of Lazarus. This morning we're just going through verse 27, and what we see in the text is sort of a back and forth. We see uh, mankind's response to suffering and trial, and then we will see the Lord Jesus' response to our response to trial, followed then by our response to his response to our response to trial, to which then we will see his response to our response to his response to our response to trial, and finally... Uh, as we finish in verse 27 this morning, I, I think what you'll see is the, our response to his response to our response to his response to our response to trials. So I know that might feel confusing. If you're taking notes, just try and write all that out. 
But out of the gate here, we see that there is a family that is suffering in Bethany, and they are friends of the Lord Jesus. I, I am encouraged by the fact that Jesus, in the midst of a public ministry where he's taking a lot of heat, in fact, at the end of John 10, we saw that there were people who were trying to kill him because they were saying that he was blaspheming. Jesus moves away from that place, and he's ministering in the area where John the Baptist was baptizing, but he is uh, sent to by Mary and Martha, right, from Bethany, and they say to Jesus, Lazarus, our brother, the one whom you love is sick. They send to him and they call and they say, hey, we're, we're having trouble over here. We got a problem. You know, in the midst of our suffering and the midst of our grief, uh, the, the most natural response for us as human beings is to cry, right? When something heavy is happening or something difficult is happening, we as human beings tend to go first to sorrow because, as you all know, I won't tell you anything you don't know already, there are a lot of things in this life that we can't control, There are a lot of things in this life that we don't see coming, and even had we seen them coming, we don't have the power to affect change in them. We are are weak by our very nature. Our power is limited. Our knowledge is limited. And that combination, limited knowledge and limited power, leaves us feeling pretty wrecked sometimes. Because we get a diagnosis that we don't like and we can't change. Because we lose loved ones. Because we're in the midst of broken relationship. Because things go wrong. And so there is a natural response for us in the midst of grief and in the midst of sorrow to cry. And that's not wrong. That's a natural response that comes from our weakness. It comes from our limitations. It comes from our lack of control or our lack of understanding. That there are all kinds of things we don't get. But I also want you to see that in the midst of that cry, there is a particular cry that is more beneficial for us as Christians beings than any of the other cries. The most beneficial cry, and we see it demonstrated here in John chapter 11, is a cry to God, right? Because you can sit in your room and you can cry, or you can sit at the steering wheel of your car in the midst of rush hour traffic and weep, but all that is is a reflection of your limited power and your limited knowledge and your limited control and your limited understanding. I can cry, but the moment that I take that cry and I cry out to God, something changes, Because where I am limited in my power and my knowledge and my understanding and my control, God is unlimited in all of those things. So he has no limitations in what he knows and what he perceives. He has no limitation in his power. He has no limitation in his understanding and in his perspective. And so they do the right thing here. Mary and Martha, in in light of the sickness of their brother, they reach out to Jesus. They cry out to Jesus. They send to him. Now I want you to note something important here as well. They don't reach out to Jesus on the basis of their affection for him. We know that they loved him and we know that he loved them. There's this really cool relationship in the midst of all of the, the persecution he's taking. He's got this core group of people that clearly he has a relationship with. We know that they love him, but they don't reach out to him in terms of saying, hey, Jesus, you know us, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, like you've had dinner with us, you've been over our house. We love you so much, right? You know that. We love you. We care about you. We listen to you. We obey you. And on the basis of our affection for you and on the basis of how much we've served you and on the basis of how much we love you, won't you come and do something for us? They're not crying out to Jesus on the basis of their affection for him. They're crying out to Jesus on the basis of his affection for them. They're crying out to Jesus saying, you know this one Lazarus whom you love. And the word there is phileo. It's a, it's a friendship. The one who you would call a friend, this Lazarus, is sick. I am reminded and comforted by the fact that a lot of times, if I'm crying out to God on the basis of my love, well, my love is fickle, and my love is intermittent, and my love is weak, and my affection towards God is sort of hit and miss. 
And sometimes it's misguided. If I'm dependent upon God's power to move in my life based on my affection for him, I got problems. And so do you, right? But if my dependence upon God is based upon his affection for me, which is perfect and unconditional and unchanging, then I got all kinds of reason to hope. Because his love is perfect, whereas mine is not. They reach out to him and they say, the one that you love is sick. They call out to him, which is the perfect response. They sent to Jesus. And then what we see following that, we see their response to trial, which is to cry out, to cry out to Christ. And then we'll see his response to their response. And you might find it a little troubling here. His response to their response. It says... um, It says in this first section, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. This is an interesting side note. I won't spend too much time here. But if you're just studying this gospel for the first time, John has not yet told us this story about Mary anointing the feet of Jesus with her hair. He's going to tell that to us later. So what this points us to is simply the fact that John, in writing this book, was writing to a crowd of people that he knew were already familiar familiar with some of these characters and these stories because of the gospels that had preceded his, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, right? So he says, you know who this is, Mary and Martha. Mary's the one who anoints Jesus' feet with her hair. Uh, he's going to tell that story later, but he says, it's their brother Lazarus. And they reach out to him, it says in verse 3, the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, and here we see his response to their response to trial, when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. There are a couple of things we see in his response to their response that you might find troubling. The first one is that that when they tell him that, that Lazarus is sick, his response is this disease or this sickness, this illness does not lead to death. And that might be troubling to you because it absolutely does lead to death, right? So does Jesus get it wrong here? We know that Lazarus is going to die. In fact, in just a couple of verses, Jesus will in, in very simple and plain terms look at his disciples and say, Lazarus is dead, right? So for Jesus to say this doesn't lead to death, we have to step back and go, what's he talking about? Because it certainly does lead to death. The first thing I want you to see this morning, and if you're taking notes, you'll want to write this down just to, just to reflect and remember, is that when, when God responds to our response to grief, he responds, first and foremost, with comprehensive perspective. Comprehensive, pro- comprehensive perspective. He is able to see the events of our lives and this world in a way that you and I cannot see. He sees it in the, in the whole and the totality of the story that he's writing and the story that he's telling. I love that what Jesus says here is, this illness does not lead to death. He's thinking, as he's done again and again in the Gospel of John, he's thinking about where this leads He's not thinking about this momentary illness. He's not thinking about this momentary sickness or even simply the physical death that will occur because of the sickness. As he's done, you know, when he looks at the wine at the wedding and he sees the the people's need for his own blood or at the well with the woman in John 4 when he looks past the water that she needs to living water which will spring up within her. When he looks past the blind man to the greater need for reconciliation and redemption. When he looks past all of these things to the greater need, he's doing the same thing here. He's, he's looking past the event in front of him to where it leads. And he says, this event, this illness, the sickness of my friend Lazarus does not need, lead to final death. It leads to the glory of God. 
That's where it's leading. That's where it's going. He has a comprehensive perspective that Mary and Martha can't possibly have, that Lazarus himself can't possibly have. God, in this moment, is able to see with a different perspective. He's thinking of where it leads. It leads to faith and belief and life and the glory of God. You know, it reminds me, and it's worth reflecting upon the fact that sometimes the glory of God involves my suffering. It would be easy in my own life to think, well, when God is glorified, that's always because I'm happy. When God is glorified, that's always because I'm praising him or because I'm singing songs of praise. When I think about glorifying God, even in something like the Westminster Catechism where it says the, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, we think about glorifying God in terms of our worship of him. But it's also worth remembering and knowing that God is not only glorified in the praises of his people, that God is glorified in the display of who he is, right? In the display of his power, in the display of his goodness, in the display of his redemptive work. He is glorified even in the moments where we don't feel like singing, you know what I'm saying? And Jesus looks at the illness of his friend Lazarus and he says, this doesn't lead to death. He doesn't mean that he's not going to die, but that isn't the end result. It is important for us to remember in our sorrow and in our loss and in our grieving and in our difficulties and the trials that come our way that many times all we see is the immediate, what's happening in the immediate circumstance and that God can look through that to where that immediate circumstance leads and that sometimes my suffering is a part of the way that God is putting his power on display, that God has this perspective, a comprehensive perspective as a result of that, we also see in, this, in his response to their response, we also see loving purpose. And he says something that you might find confounding. Jesus says in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does that make sense to you? It's worth noting that uh, when they write to Jesus, they say, hey, Lazarus, the one you love. They use the word phileo there, which means a a friendship, a friendly love. Here, John, the writer, says to us, because Jesus loved, and there the word is agape. It's it's a God-sized love. It's an unconditional love. Because Jesus agaped Martha and her sister and Lazarus, he stayed two days longer. He stayed two days longer. He delayed. You think that's what uh, Martha and Mary were thinking of when they asked him to come? You think they were thinking, hey, you know what? Just whenever it works for you, whenever you can fit it in on your schedule, Lazarus is really sick. Whenever you can make it over here to us, that'd be great. I don't think that's what they're thinking at all. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm in the process right now of trying to clean up my backyard furniture. You know, like trying to get my furniture in the backyard ready for, uh, for the summer. You know, we can sit outside and kind of relax. And over the course of whatever, the spiders have come in and they've laid all those little white, uh, those little white egg things. Those are terrifying, right? I think in some ways, like the little white spider egg sacs are more terrifying than an actual spider. Because what's going on in there, right? And if I get close to that thing, will it stick out a little thing and bite me? Like, are they going to come out? Am I going to get baby spiders in my ears? I really don't know what's going to happen, right? And so I call Terminex, right? Because I have a contract with Terminex, and, uh, and I say to them, hey, I want to sit outside on my patio furniture, but the spiders have made this furniture their own, and I would like you to come and do what I'm paying you to do. Get rid of these spider eggs so that I don't have to live in terror. And uh, Terminex does this thing to me where they go, yeah, we'd be happy to come and take care of those, uh, and we can, we'll, we'll be able to schedule an appointment to come out to your house in July. I'll be dead by spider bites by July, right? My whole family, it's going to be all over. We can't live till July. You have to come now. I need an immediate response. These spider eggs are going to hatch any minute, right? 
Terminex doesn't have the time to come to me. I guarantee you that this isn't what Martha and Mary were thinking. And so we look at that and we say, well, how is this delay a reaction to the love of God? How is this delay a response to his love for Martha and her sister and Lazarus? It doesn't seem like that's the loving thing to do. It seems to us, from our perspective, like the loving thing to do is drop whatever you're doing and get to Lazarus' bedside. But let me read it to you again. It says Jesus loved them, verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. I want you to see that not only does God look at our response, not only does he respond with comprehensive perspective, but he also responds with loving purpose. And loving purpose sometimes is different than what we think it will be. Sometimes his love is made manifest in our lives in ways that are different than what we would expect or maybe even what we're asking. Because God is committed to always doing what is best, right? What is best for us, but broad, more broadly, what is best generally. He is good. He is a good and faithful and holy God, and he is always doing what is best, but sometimes what is best we can't comprehend, and sometimes what is good and best is not what we would choose in the timing we would choose it. That's just a fact. That because we can't see the whole thing, there are times when we're asking God to do a thing for us that we think is good, but actually is not because we have a limited perspective and limited power. I've told some of you before, uh, the one thing in my marriage that I don't allow my wife to do, and I know that sounds misogynistic, but there's one thing in our family that I've asked her not to do. How about that? And uh, I, don't, I don't like my wife to serve me ice cream, right? I don't like my wife to serve me ice cream because when she does, sh- the servings of ice cream that she serves me are like these tiny little, uh, and she brings it out, and I'm like, what, I- what is this exactly, you know? I'm like, I'm a man. You know, can I get a man size? I can't, what, is, what did you scoop this with a melon baller? I can't eat this. And uh, she goes, well, that's the recommended serving size of ice cream. I'm like, whoever gave a crap about the recommended serving size, right? Does anybody read? I don't, like, well, I don't care about that. I want what I want. And I don't want, here's the deal. I don't want what's best. So I don't let her serve me ice cream, Right? I just get a spoon and take the tub. That's the way that goes. <laughs> you know, sometimes in our lives, this principle is hard. The fact that Jesus has a loving purpose, that God has a loving purpose, and you can hear it, and you might even say you believe it, but in the midst of your suffering and in the midst of your sorrow, you go, I don't want his loving purpose. I don't want what's best. I want what I want. I want what I want. But Jesus has a loving purpose. He loves them, and so he delays. The reality is that there are times in our life, and there are times all throughout the Scripture. So I will tell you, too, that John 11 is a bit of a microcosm of the the totality of Scripture. There are all kinds of places where this pattern is repeated, where the people of God are called to wait. There are times where the delay or the apparent delay of God will be frustrating to us, It will be angering to us. It will be disappointing to us. But I want to reaffirm for you that Jesus isn't delayed here because he doesn't know what to do or because he's trying to make up his mind. What appears like a delay to Mary and Martha, what appears like a delay to Jesus' disciples was actually an immediate decision. Let me say that again. Jesus decides immediately to wait. So sometimes on our timeline, in the midst of our suffering and our pain, it feels like God's just stalling. It feels like Terminex going, yeah, we're not going to take care of the spiders, right? But God is never indecisive. He is never unsure. He is never unaware of that comprehensive perspective or his loving purpose. Sometimes he acts, he always acts immediately, but sometimes his immediate act is to pause, 
And that is always for our good. Now let me say this also. We see in the text and we see throughout the whole of Scripture that he always comes. He always comes. And I would want to comfort you here this morning with that. He may not come in the time frame that you would choose. He may not come when you want him to or because you've told him to. But Jesus never leaves us alone. He never abandons us. We are never isolated. He always comes. He just comes in the timing that is best because of his loving purpose, because of his comprehensive perspective. I will say that I think one of the, one of the most heinous things that Christians do, and I don't think we do it on purpose, but I've seen it happen time and time again, is that we, we come into a hospital room or we sit beside someone's sickbed or we sit across a table at lunch with someone who's grieving and we look at them and we say, hey, you know what? God's gonna work all this out, right? God's got a great purpose. Yeah, you're suffering, but you know what? It's gonna turn out great in the end. And I, and I will tell you that while theologically that is accurate, in the moment it's the worst possible thing to say to somebody who's suffering, because from our human perspective, with our limited knowledge and our limited power, while we can believe and trust in the fact that God has a loving purpose and that he has a comprehensive perspective, the reality is that in our human knowledge, you and I, in our brokenness and in our weakness, we don't know exactly how that's going to play out. We don't know in those moments exactly how he will redeem it or how he will reconcile it or how it works out to be a, for, for the best. And in those moments where we look at our friends and neighbors and family who are grieving and we go, hey, don't cry, don't be angry, don't be sorrowful because God's gonna sort it all out. It's not helpful. It's true, but it's not helpful. What is better is to walk alongside in humility and to own the fact that while we trust that God is good, that he has a loving purpose and a broader perspective, that you and me and all of us, sometimes we have to wait and see what that is. And sometimes the circumstances we're in, in the moment that we're in, with the knowledge we have as human beings, just sucks. And it's fine to just own that. It's fine to look across a hospital bed at somebody and go, this just stinks right now. I don't know how God's gonna sort it out. You're not diminishing God's power. You're not diminishing God's purpose. You're not diminishing his love by owning the fact that you don't know everything about what God is doing. In fact, you're being more honest in that moment. To say, I don't get it, but I trust him. We see here in God's response to their response. Their response is to cry out. God's response to their response is comprehensive perspective. It's loving purpose. And thirdly, we see his divine power. I love the fact that in this text, Jesus never feels ruffled at all. Right? He never feels ruffled at all. Let's keep reading. It says in, uh, in, verse, in verse 7, after this, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Remember, the people in Judea wanted to kill him. And so the disciples look at him and go, they rabbi, in verse 8, rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to kill you. Are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. I love that Jesus says, Look, they're like, We shouldn't go back to Judea. The people there want to kill us. And Jesus goes, Look, my path is illuminated. I've said it again and again. I'm on a clock here. There is a time coming, but my hour has not yet come. And as long as I have this comprehensive perspective, and as long as I have this loving purpose, as long as I have this divine power, they can't do anything to me. Our path before us is completely illuminated. We're not going to stumble. We're not going to trip because we know what lies before us. Because of his power, he's not worried about the people with rocks in Judea. Because of his knowledge of God's purpose and plan, he's not worried about being ambushed on the way to Bethany. 
He looks at his disciples and says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Let's go and wake him up, right? I think it's very telling that for, for us, for created beings like us, death feels like the absolute, absolute worst thing that can happen. People live in absolute, utter horror of death because it feels like the end of everything. Can I tell you that for Jesus, with his perspective and his power and his loving purpose, that human physical death feels like a nap to him. It's just a speed bump on a journey to someplace greater. He does not see physical human death as an obstacle. He does not see physical human death as something to be worried about. He says, let's go and wake him up. It's also worth noting that Jesus does that a lot in, in the Gospels. He refers to death, human physical death, as sleeping or the needing to be awakened, and his disciples never get it. Interestingly, when we get into uh, Acts, when we get into the beginning of the early church, the disciples have adopted that language. They start to refer to death as sleep. I love that. Because over time, what they've come to recognize is his same comprehensive perspective, his same divine power, his same loving purpose, which then allows them to look at physical human death and go, this isn't the end of anything. It's just a road to someplace greater. Jesus says, let's go and wake him up. And they're like, uh, for what it's worth, if he's asleep, uh, somebody else can wake him up. We don't have to go there, right? He says, My, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. I'll tell you, that's a hard one, right? Here we have Jesus saying in no uncertain terms, Lazarus isn't asleep. He's not just sick. To be perfectly clear with you, he's dead. And he follows that proclamation with a statement that should stir you a little. He says, our friend Lazarus isn't asleep. He's dead. That's what I was trying to tell you. And can I tell you, Jesus says, for your sake, I'm glad he's dead. What? What? He says, I'm glad he's dead so that you can believe. You see, from that comprehensive perspective and in the midst of that loving purpose and as a result of that divine power, the physical death of a human being is of less significance than the belief of those who will witness what God can do. Jesus is aiming at something greater than physical human death. And so he has the ability in all love and in all honesty to say, this death doesn't bother me. In fact, I'm glad it happened because God is gonna do something greater here. I'm glad it happened for your sake that you will believe. That's his response to our response to suffering. Now I want you to look, uh, as we see here in the text, I want you to look then at our response to his response to our response to suffering. Because they cry out to him and they go, hey, Lazarus, your friend is sick. You love him. Come and help him. And he goes, uh, he delays. He demonstrates his comprehensive perspective and his loving purpose and his divine power. And then we see a, a, mix, of, uh, a mix of responses, human responses. The first one, real easy in the text, is confusion, right? His disciples are like, why would you want to go back to Jerusalem if everybody there wants to kill you? They don't get it, which they, all, they seldom do get it, right? They're confused. They look at him and he says, well, our friend Lazarus is asleep. We're going to go wake him up. And they're like, why, why, would we, why do we have to do that? Aren't there plenty of people who just get him an alarm or whatever? get him a chicken and buy him a rooster, you know? He doesn't need us for that. Their response to Jesus' method is confusion. They're confused by what he's doing. And can I say that's a pretty common response for all of us as well. If you're here this morning and you're in the midst of grief, if you're in the midst of trial, if you're in the midst of suffering, the reality is that you are likely confused. 
you're likely looking at what God is doing and, and his response to you, or maybe the delay in his response to you, or the perceived delay, and it can feel like, what is going on here? Where are you? And there is confusion that comes. Because there is a difference between us and God. Because we don't have the same perspective. Because we don't have the same power. Because we don't always comprehend his purpose. I've said before that for many of us, we make the mistake of imagining God to be uh, us on our best day, right? We imagine that God is just me, without my sin, without my flaws, but with my same reasoning and with my same perspectives and with my same understanding of the way the world works. That God is just me on my best day, and that isn't true. If you think of God as yourself on your best day, you will always be disappointed because he is other than us. He is the infinite creator, and we are simply the eternal creation, right? There are things about God that are difficult and will always be difficult for us to comprehend. You know that we will spend eternity uncovering the realities and the truths about who God is, and we will never exhaust him. We will never exhaust our knowledge of him. We will keep growing in our knowledge of him. So it makes sense that there would be times in our lives where we would be confused by his purpose, by his perspective, and by his power or his use of it. It makes sense we'd be confused, but I, I want to be clear here. God doesn't confuse us as a way to taunt us. If you feel confused by God this morning, it is because there is a difference between us and God and because we have limitations as created beings. It's not that God is trying to seed confusion in you. Our God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of order. But one of the, one of the responses, one of our responses to his response to our response is confusion. Another one is resignation. I love, uh, I love Thomas's response. Remember, back here in this text, Jesus has just said in 14, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. When he says, let us go to him, well, he's just said he's, di- he's died. He's in the grave. So when Jesus says, let us go to him, Thomas naturally assumes, well, Jesus is calling us to go to the grave also. So look at Thomas's resignation here in 16. Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him, right? All right, here we go, right? Now, I don't know whether Thomas even understood the, the beauty of what he's articulated, but essentially what Thomas says here is it's a great encapsulation of what discipleship is. Jesus will say in Matthew 16, if you want to be my disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus will essentially say, if you want to be my followers, be ready to die. Now Thomas, not fully understanding what Jesus is doing, but recognizing he wants to go back to Judea where there are people there that want to kill him, and recognizing he's just said, let's go to a dead man, right, assumes Jesus is calling them to the grave. And so with resignation, he goes, I don't get it, but here we go. There may be some of you in the room in the midst of grief or suffering or sorrow or pain who are just resigned. Resigned to what you probably perceive to be just a continued life of grief. I don't get it, but I guess this is what God has for me. I'm just gonna be sad forever. Sometimes our response is confusion. Sometimes our response is resignation. Sometimes our response is sorrow, increased sorrow. We're not gonna get there this morning, but Mary, Mary weeps at Jesus' feet when he arrives. And it says in this text that we're studying today that the Jews in Jerusalem who wanted to stone Jesus previously, the Jews come to console Mary and Martha. There's weeping and sorrow. There are moments in our lives in the midst of trial and difficulty where we're just heavy-hearted and sorrowful. We're just weeping and crying. That's That's an acceptable response. It's a true response. I also see in the text our response to his response to our response is sometimes frustration and anger. Look at what Martha says. Read 17 and following. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, it doesn't say that she's angry here. And in fact, if you look at the original language, there's no, there's no angry tone even. But I see underneath her question, and I, just being a human being myself, I see some frustration. She looks at Jesus and she goes, hey, where have you been? Right? I believe these things about you. I believe that whatever you ask God, he will give to you. I believe that if you'd been here, my, my brother wouldn't be dead. So where were you? Like, I, I, I believe all these things about you, but I don't get what you're doing. I think sometimes our response to his response to our response is just like this. God, I want to hold on to these things I believe about you. I understand some things about you, but I don't get this. And frankly, your response to my response is confounding. Frankly, your response is frustrating and angering. I want you to see something important here. Jesus does not, he does not reprimand any of these people. In their confusion, in their resignation, in their sorrow, in their anger. There is not a point in this text where Jesus goes, hey, wipe those tears away, right? This doesn't lead to death. It leads to the glory of God. Now, quit, quit that crying, right? He doesn't look at Martha and say, hey, 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 I am the son of God. You don't talk to me like that, sister, right? You keep your tone reverent, right? You see this blue sash? That means shush, right? We don't, uh, we don't see a reprimand like that. I've, I've heard Christians say, I've heard Christians say, hey, you know what? You can express your heart to God, but be careful. Be careful to be reverent. Can I tell you something? I don't know what, that, what they're trying to do, but when we say to people, be careful to be reverent, what we're saying is suppress what you're actually feeling so you don't get in trouble. And can I tell you also that God knows what's in your heart, even if you're suppressing it. So if you're angry and you're ticked off and you're frustrated or sorrowful or confused or resigned and you just try and put on a good face because of the blue sash, you're not fooling him and you're not fooling yourself. What's the point of that? It would be just adhering to the laws of men. Can I tell you there is no penalty for expressing truly what is happening in your heart in response to his response to your response to grief. There is no penalty to coming to Jesus and going, I'm hurting. This is hard. He doesn't reprimand them for that. His response to their response, to his response to their response to suffering is to point them to belief. Look at what happens next. She says, where were you? And he says this in 23. Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She points to a date on the calendar. I know that on the last day he'll rise again. On the resurrection day. We're waiting for that. And Jesus goes, hold on. And here we see the, the fifth of the powerful I am statements in the book of John. She says, I know I'll see my brother again on the resurrection day. He says this in 25, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. Not I give the resurrection. Not I'll be there at the resurrection. Not I'm the one who started that holiday, right? He says, resurrection is me. I am resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. And here he encapsulates the gospel beautifully. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus has this resurrection power. Right? And he looks at her, and this is, this is his response to her response. He says, do you believe this? 
when, remember back at the beginning when Jesus said, this doesn't lead, this doesn't lead to death? When he said earlier, I'm glad this happened because it will lead to the glory of God and to your belief, Jesus was always looking to where this would lead and where it leads is to belief. Jesus is aiming at belief. He's trying to draw, draw trust. And so he looks at her and he says, don't wait for a day in the future. Don't wait for an event that's coming down the road. Resurrection is here. I am resurrection. I am life. If you believe in me, yet though you die, you will live. And if you believe in me, you will never die. Do you believe it? He's calling her to trust. You know, finding peace in the midst of grief and sorrow and suffering, you, you don't find it because you know the right things about God, right? If you're suffering here today, me telling you, oh, God has all the power, right? And he's, he, he has all these purposes and whatever. Knowing things about God d- doesn't bring you peace. Having the right information, the right theology about God doesn't bring you peace. You want to know what brings you peace? Trusting in him. Trusting in his comprehensive perspective, trusting in his loving purpose, trusting in his divine power, and recognizing that his timing might be different than yours, that what is best in any given situation might not be something you understand or can comprehend. That while you're feeling confusion and resignation and sorrow and anger, that Jesus is looking at you going, but do you trust me? Do you believe in me? I am resurrection. Do you trust me? And so beautifully then, as we finish up this morning, I will show you 